This is the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. In this episode, the Burgess Foundation's Andrew Biswell talks to the novelist Adam Roberts about literary dystopias and utopias. This podcast was recorded from a live stream that broadcast on the 5th of May 2021. The event was hosted by the Burgess Foundation's Ian Carrington. Welcome to a virtual Burgess Foundation for uh, our first dystopian dialogue. And um, I'm hoping that if this goes well, then we'll have more dystopian dialogues um, in the in future. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's so much to talk about. Um, our starting point, of course, is Anthony Burgess and dystopia. I'm not going to uh, get into that because we have two wonderful experts to talk about it um, we're going to have uh, Adam Roberts um, wonderful author author of The Black Prince uh, a novel based on a film script by Anthony Burgess a uh, fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and he's written tons of novels and non-fiction works about uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and H.G. Uh, Wells you may well get a mention uh, in this next hour and we will also be joined uh, by Andrew Biswell who's in the actual Burgess Foundation, as you will see when he comes on camera, uh, author of uh, The Real Life of Anthony Burgess and the director of the International Anthony Burgess Foundation, and most importantly, my boss, so I'd better do a good job. Um, So uh, thank you all for um, popping along, really good to see you. Um, So um, yes, let's uh, bring in uh, our our panellists. So... Um, we should suddenly see um, an Adam Roberts and um, let me unmute. Oh, yeah, you've unmuted. Hello, chaps. How are you feeling? Are you feeling um, suitably despondent? Utopian. Oh, you. All right. Yeah. I'm, I've got a glass of wine, and I happen to know that Andrew is is uh, drinking an energy drink to give him uh, that extra fizz. So it's one of us is going to slide into a into a utopian happy coma the other will get more and more energetic until <laughs> become uh, world dictator or something <laughs> um, and do you like my um wonderful burgess book background which it is a, nice the nice colors it's, they, are very, they are very nice colors so it's a, it's, it's a banksy obviously um right um i shall leave you both to it um I will uh, come back. Well, Andrew will summon me um, later on uh, to curate the Q&A. Do get those questions in and I'll be back about quarter to, unless it gets so dystopian, the rapture happens and I've disappeared. But um, (laughs) hopefully, um, but I shall uh, disappear off and I shall see you all soon. Over to you, chaps. Thanks, Ian, and uh, welcome, Adam. When we were thinking about this event, um, one of the ideas was to talk about the broader history of utopia and dystopia um, going way back right before Burgess. Um, I mean, we will touch on him uh, inevitably, but um, uh, Adam, you've done quite a lot of work on this and um, obviously you read very widely um, in all kinds of subjects in science fiction and the history of literature. And um, what's your sense of the broad uh, relationship between historically between utopia and and its its kind of younger cousin dystopia it is interesting isn't it the fact that the dystopia is the younger cousin really intrigues me 
And I don't want to, I don't want to start with a kind of lecture. I am a university professor, so I'm quite prepared to just blather on for a full hour and set you a little exam at the end to make sure everyone's been paying attention. But there are two questions about dystopia that really, really fascinate me. One is, why does it arrive on the scene so much later than utopia? Now, we're all familiar with utopia. We know the word comes from Thomas More's novel, which was published originally in 1516 in Latin, um, as all the best novels should be. Um, and from then, right through the 16th and 17th and 18th, 19th century, there were scores and scores and scores of utopian stories published, um, utopian plans to improve society. And that kind of makes sense because obviously society is not perfect and it's natural, it's kind of human to think, well, how could we make things better? And lots of people have done that. The word dystopia is not coined until 1868, which seems really late in the day for me. It's coined by John Stuart Mill, the Liberal MP and writer, and he, he uses it in a in a a speech in the House of Commons in 1868. And actually, I think this is interesting as well. He's talking about Ireland. He's saying that the British uh, treatment of Ireland in the 19th century is turning the place into, he says, the opposite of a utopia. Let us call it a dystopia. And so towards the end of the 19th century, this idea starts to take root. And I think the first proper dystopian novel, I know we're going to come back to this because I know Burgess amongst many other things that he had a kind of passion for, was really interested in H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells writes what is, I think, the first proper dystopian novel. Uh, it comes out in 1899, right at the end of the century. It's Asleep Awakes. And it's got lots of the features that you now we now kind of recognise as part of the fixtures and fittings of dystopian fantasy. It's set in this huge domed city where technology's sort of taken over and there are various kind of malign social engineering things have gone on to keep ordinary people uh, placated and, and miserable and uh, there's a uh, tyranny and the quality of life is very low and it's all it's a sort of satire on the encroachment of industrialization and technology on ordinary life and it proves hugely hugely influential so then through the 20th century then there were loads of dystopia novels and some of the most famous novels i'm sure people attending will be familiar with all of these novels, Zamyatin's We in Russia, which comes out in 2024. Um, it's got quite a complicated publication history, Zamyatin's novel, because the Russian the Soviet government didn't like it. So it wasn't, it was published in English translation before it was published in its native tongue. But then Huxley's Brave New World, um, which is 1932. Um, 1984, George Orwell's great dystopian novel. It's easy to remember when that's published because it was published he called it 1984 because he was writing it in 1948 and he just swapped the numbers around uh, for his title. So it was published in 1949 when he'd finished writing it. Um, but all through the 50s and the 60s, at the same time that Burgess is writing his utopias in the in the 60s, I know we're going to talk about Clockwork Orange, which is uh, 62, I think, and the the Wanting Sea, which I think is the same year, is it? I don't know. I should I should defer to the experts. Um, and The Handmaid's Tale and uh, The Road it becomes increasingly a feature of, of literary discourse. And that brings me to the second question, which really intrigues me about dystopia, which is it's kind of conquered the world now. I mean, H.G. Wells wrote this dystopian novel, uh, When the Sleeper Wakes, but he also wrote a series of utopian novels. He had a utopian vision. He thought well, this is how the world could be made better. And perhaps the most famous of them is his book, A Modern Utopia, which comes out in 1905, 
It's not the only one he wrote. He wrote lots of utopian novels and lots of people did. But people have sort of stopped doing that. I'm not sure I could point to a contemporary writer or you know, a culture text that is just utopian. On the contrary, everything now seems to be dystopian. Everything is flavoured with that horrible, um, sour, dystopian flavour. It's, it's everywhere, and I, particularly in what they call YA, young adult writing, um, the Divergence and the Maze Runners and the Hunger Games series, uh, Harry Potter, which was enormous, starts as this charming sort of school, public school magic adventure, and then becomes this dystopian satire on, on the, the horrors of uh, political tyranny, Battle Royale, The Road, everything is dystopian now. And I wonder why, I wonder why we've given up on utopia and why we've, we're so fascinated by dystopia. So just for an example, um, it seems to me that even if, if we don't think of them as full utopias, something, uh, a novel like J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, which is a, an epic fantasy set in the imaginary universe, it's, it's kind of in love with its world. Its world is more beautiful and refined. It has this kind of pre-Raphaelite grace and loveliness that our world doesn't have. And fantasy, which is enormous and very popular nowadays, isn't interested in that anymore. Now we have things like Game of Thrones or Song of Fire and Ice where everything is horrible all the time and every man is wolf to man and everything is rapine and murder and torture as if we've given up on that that kind of vision that things might be better or I was thinking about James Bond when I was a kid watching James Bond movies they're kind of fun they're sort of ridiculous kind of camp exercises in adventure and now James Bond is dark and gritty and he must be the thwacked in the testicles with a knotted rope all the time and it's like what where why are we why, what's happened to us why is dystopia such a cultural dominant nowadays so there's two questions there one is why i mean i'm inter interested to know what what you think about this andrew and how it relates to burgess but also everyone who's attending i'm curious to know what your perspective of it on this is why does dystopia come along relatively late in the day it's obviously not because people can't imagine horrors and terrors and nastiness that's been part of the human condition for as long as there have been humans telling stories to one another but this idea that you do you come up with a story that is a systematic portrayal of a whole society which is an anti-utopia which everything is there to make your existence more miserable and, and depleted and oppressed that's really only a 20th and 21st century phenomenon and why has it become so dominant i don't know what you i don't i'm not trying to put you on the spot andrew but actually you could just answer those two questions then we can call a halt to the whole <laughs> seminar then it's all done then we can just go straight can to the yeah i mean i guess politics <laughs> has a lot to do with it and and the, one of the books that i've read recently partly because burgess talks about it but also because it's a it's, it's a great work in itself is darkness at noon uh the, the kerstler novel mm -hmm. which is um as the title suggests i mean it's a story about somebody who's in prison who's going to be executed who's looking back on his life. And he, he's been involved in the system that, that now um, oppresses him. And ultimately one presumes at the end of the book is going to kill him. Um, and obviously this comes out of a, 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 to some extent, a lived experience of the Soviet system um, that, that Kersler had, had seen and, and witnessed and so forth. Um, I mean, thinking back to the, um, the earlier books from the 20s and 30s that also formed part of this 
tradition. And, and Burgess, we know, I mean, from his nonfiction writing, from the novel now and so forth, he'd, he'd read very widely in, in the form, in utopia and dystopia. And he much preferred dystopia, partly because there was so much more of it. Um, but it seems to me that there's maybe a, a change of tone in the some of the earlier books, for example, Brave New World. You're not quite sure what you're reading, but, but partly it's satire. There's a kind of lightness about that novel, and it's quite amused by its own um, its own visions and its own creations. Whereas by the time you hit um, Orwell, I mean, transitioning from, from Animal Farm to 1984, there's, there, there's almost no room for, for kind of levity or humor. It's the, the kind of bleak, uncompromising mood that I think sets the fashion for what comes afterwards. And, and certainly when um, A Clockwork Orange and The Wanting Seed are being written in I mean, thought about in the late 50s, written in the early 60s. Um, there's a, a huge flourishing of, uh, of other dystopian writing around that time. And Burgess is very much aware of this because he's reviewing fiction for the Yorkshire Post. So, um, for example, Constantine Fitzgibbon's novel, When the Kissing Had to Stop, published in 1960, arrived at exactly the right time. Also, uh, Facial Justice by... There's a title Hunt. for the ages. There's a book that's still current. Well, I, I, I think that there's a chance it could be, well, yes, the kissing has stopped. Um, it, it's a good book. I mean, should be reprinted. Um, and some of them, I mean, almost forgotten that this novel called The Unsleep that he, he gestures towards in the dedication to The Wanting, Sleed, uh, the Wanting Seed, um, The Unsleep by Diana and Mayor Gillen, published 1961, which is the year he completes A Clockwork Orange. Um, and a whole load of other books that go around that Huxley's written Brave New World revisited his nonfiction um, updating of um, some of the threads from Brave New World in, I think it's 57. Um, so Burgess's dystopias come out not from nowhere, but come from a particular moment, it seems to me, where many other literary writers are, are also kind of excited about trying to devise the, the, the most unappealing, most kind of oppressive possible future world. That is interesting. I think it's isn't it? I mean, with science fiction as well, people like Ballard. So, sorry. You're... Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. I think it is tied in with the fact that there's a there's a huge boom in science fiction writing after World War II, when what what was quite a kind of niche cultural phenomenon in the 20s and 30s, the kind of golden age, becomes much more widespread. And there's something about the science fiction imagination that is drawn to to dystopias. I mean, I suppose I'd say the thing about Huxley that interests me is that he's kind of moving in the other direction. So he does revisit Brave New World, but he also publishes Island, which is his late novel, which is a kind of utopia. I mean, I, the, one of the questions come out in the chat, I'm keeping my eye, my beady eye, this one on the chat. Um, so somebody, I'm not sure, uh, I, I can't see anyone's names though, um, points out that maybe the culture novels of Ian M. Banks could be described as utopias. And I think there's something in that. There is a kind of utopian vision behind Banks's culture or behind, let's say, Star Trek. But the problem is, it's a formal problem as much as it's anything. If you're a writer and you want to tell a story, you need a conflict. If there's no conflict, there's no drama. And if there's no drama, then you, you, don't, you don't have a story. Uh, if everyone just lives happily, if Romeo and Juliet I just fall in love and get married and live a happy life, then you don't have a great play. There needs to be some, you know, some friction, some tension there. And that's dramatically the problem with Utopia. So Banks writes all these culture novels, but he very rarely sets them just in the culture with everyone living happily. He say he travels outside the culture into much nastier worlds, much nastier societies. 
And that might be part of it, actually. It's just harder to write a dramatically interesting utopia. But I think it's also what you're saying, Andrew. It's clearly uh, World War II, which had a huge impact, obviously, on everyone who lived through it, particularly on Burgess. Um, it's it's that, that line that William Golding uh, coined, which I think has always stuck with me. He said, anyone who lived through those years, he means the war years, and didn't come to understand that man makes evil as a bee honey must be not right in the head. And it's a beautiful whole kind of counterintuitive images. That's what he took away. So Golding's experience, I mean, Lord of the Flies is kind of a dystopian novel from around this kind of post-war time. And that was Golding's experience. He says he went into the war a kind of perfectionist. He thought, well, we can remake society and everyone will be happy. And he came out of the war saying, no, there's something just evil in us as in human beings. Man makes evil as a bee honey. And that then informs all his subsequent writing. And there's something of that. Although I would also, I think you really put your finger on something important, Andrew, that a lot of dystopia is very kind of earnest and doer. Whereas one of the things that really redeems Burgess as a writer for me is that he's he's never like that. Even when the topic of his novel is very dark, there is always a kind of an ironic, a satirical, a dark humour. It's, it's there in, in Clockwork Orange, which is full of really horrible things, but which is treated in this particular kind of tonal way. Uh, it's there in The Wanting Seed, which is full of all sorts of kind of comic observations and touches. And we were, before the, we started the session, we were chatting about which, I mean, I suppose those are the two most famous Burgess dystopias, but there are, there's also 1985, um, which, in which he, he, re, uh, he goes back to Orwell's 1984, um, and that, it's a strange novel, 1985. It's a kind of novella, and it comes with a long introduction in which Burgess talks about 1984, in which he says it's a comedy. It's anyone who lived through post-war Britain would understand all the things that Orwell is talking about, uh, that kind of holiday camp flavour of British totalitarianism. Or Byrne, his, his posthumously published long poem, which is kind of a dystopian text as well, which is full of Byronic comedy and hilarity. And I'm not sure I can think of many other writers who manage that, that balance of having a properly grumpy dystopian view of how things are going, but doing it in with a certain a certain kind of hilarity almost. Do you think? Or do you think I'm overstating that? No, I think that's always there. And um, certainly the tonally as well. I, I think the um, the Burgess work is actually much closer to to, to Huxley, who he's obviously read with huge attention. Um, we have in the, the library downstairs at the foundation, Burgess's editions of Huxley, which he was buying as they came out in, in the, uh, especially in the thirties and the forties and so forth. And he'd read uh, all, all of Huxley, all the, the poems and the, the plays and, and the bits that nobody ever talks about. He knew the body of work very well. Um, and I, I think more so than, than Orwell, I mean, the classic comparisons between 1984 and A Clockwork Orange, but I, I think um, a lot of Burgess has his roots in, in very early Huxley, actually, the, the, the kind of light um, and, and almost sort of frivolous, uh, but somebody who's fascinated by ideas, who's got almost too many of them, and is constantly sort of grabbing out, reaching for new ones. Um, before we, we really dive into the Burgess, I, I'm keen to say a few more words, because you, you've written this literary life of H.G. Wells, and Wells's Modern Utopia uh, is such an interesting book. Uh, and again, 
I, I think possibly influential on something like 1985 and its kind of formal um, variety and so forth. Could you say something about um, how, how Wells moves from, um, well, back and forth, I suppose, between dystopia and utopia? Yeah, so the, 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 he writes um, when the sleeper, the sleeper wakes, and he rewrites it as when the sleeper wakes in 1910. That's kind of his starting point. So all his science fiction from the 1890s is quite dark, is quite violent, um, kind of. But he he also genuinely believed in the utopian possibilities of the future. He saw a world state governing the whole planet in which everybody could flourish. And he was keen, particularly when he joined the Fabians. The Fabians are kind of an early socialist movement, but they're still around, they're still there. They're thought of as a sort of adjunct to the, the Labour Party. Um, the Labour Party actually came to power and the Fabians never did. And he joined that group and wrote a modern utopia in part to kind of gratify them, to flatter them, hoping to uh, consolidate his position as a leading Fabian. And it is a very strange novel. So it gets around the problem of the lack of dramatic interest because there is no conflict and therefore no drama in this utopian world by having two people. One of them is, they're not named in the novel, but one of them is Wells and the other is actually his friend, Graham Wallace. And they went, they went on a walking tour of Switzerland. Um, and in the novel, that's what happens. These two men go on a walking tour and they sort of slip through a, a, what we would now say is a kind of crack in the space-time continuum. That's not how Wells describes it, but they find themselves in an alternative version of Earth, which is exactly like our Earth, except it is a utopia. And then the rest of the novel is a Cook's tour of this utopia. And it, they walk around and they explore and they talk to all the people and they discover how it's organised and Wells gives us all that detail I think he does it quite well I think it's a surprisingly readable book because it could just be one long info dump a lot of utopian books are people have their pet theories as to how utopia should function and they just unload those theories on the reader Wells manages I think to keep it kind of interesting and entertaining but what it boils down to is it's a world state um, wealth is universally distributed although you are allowed to earn more wealth if you want more wealth why would you want to all your needs are catered for uh, and everything is kind of looked after by a group called the samurai. And the samurai, they take their name from the, the Japanese warrior caste, but they're not specifically Japanese. Anyone can be a samurai if they feel the calling and if they are prepared to live up to the high standards and ideals of the samurai order. And they just, that's one of the great problems of utopia. Utopia needs something to stop it sliding back into dystopia. It needs that kind of old Adam, that original sin, which Burgess, I think, did believe in from reasserting itself. And that's what the samurai do. I always think they're a bit like the SS, frankly, the samurai in a modern utopia. They have absolute power and it, they're entirely self-appointed. And the, the only uh, break on their power is that every few years they are investigated, but by other samurai, not by anybody else. So they have, you're thinking, well, if Wells doesn't believe that power corrupts clearly he thinks that the right sort of person and really he's thinking of all his friends in the fabian movement and he puts them sort of into the novel in various forms who could just give these people absolute power they could order the world you know a technocracy a, a world state and it is I mean, you, you read it recently i think Andrew. so did it did it hold your attention uh yes but partly because it, it's such a weird piece of writing i think um and uh, I, I read the introduction by Patrick Parander, which told me that, that Wells wrote it 
he was in the middle of writing something else and he went on this walking tour of Switzerland and he sort of dashes off a utopia and then goes back to the history of Mr. Polly or something. And it does feel a bit like a sort of holiday diary, a, a kind of some, something you might um, write on, on your day off, uh, but clearly animated by, you know, uh, presumably very you know, deeply held principles about um, how people should treat each other. And he keeps saying it's achievable, that, that we can live in utopia. It's not that different from the world that we know, but we just need to kind of change a few things. Um, though, I don't know, that always has its sinister side. I, I've been reading, I have a very good PhD student who's working on dystopias at the moment. She's got me reading uh, Margaret Atwood's essays on science fiction and dystopia. And Atwood makes the very good point that in every utopia, you have to do something with the people who won't conform, who don't want to live in utopia, whether that's uh, exile or prison or execution or, or something, there, there has to be some kind of sanction. And in many ways, it seems to me that's, that's what Burgess is often writing about um, in, in 1985 and in The Wanting Seed. He's interested in the dissidents who don't want to buy into this kind of big political vision of, of happiness there. They're, they're awkward buggers really, and, and they, they want to do something else. They, they don't want to conform in that way. Uh, whereas A Clockwork Orange, which perhaps is the most successful of his, his dystopias, um, that's a different kind of book entirely. That's, um, uh, I'm, I'm struggling a bit to, to sort of characterize it, um, but it comes out of this context of, of debates about juvenile delinquency and the teddy boys and yeah, it's a book about good and evil. Um, it's, it's very heavily plotted. Burgess says it's a parable rather than a novel. He says it's too didactic to be artistic. And I, I wonder what you, you make of, of that, um, how well A Clockwork Orange works in relation to these other dystopias we're thinking about. It's strange, isn't it? So that one of the arguments that you sometimes come across in utopian studies, and I should say, utopian studies is a, is a flourishing aspect of, kind of academic discipline. There's a, a a biannual conference called the Utopiales, which happens in various European cities, or I mean, it hasn't happened this year because of the lockdown and everything. There are scholars who specialise in studying utopian literature. There are actual utopians who come along to the Utopiales conference, often retired businessmen or businesswomen who have lots of money and want to set up a commune and so on. It's not that the utopian urge has entirely gone away, but one of the points that utopian scholars will say is there is in Wells's vision, there's this you know, universalizing sense. Once we have a world state, then everyone will be able to fit in and flourish. Whereas the reality of humanity is that we're all very various and we all have different perspectives on things. And when you take it that view, then Hitler's Mein Kampf is a utopian text for Hitler. Not if you're a Jew or a Slav or you know any of the people that Hitler wanted to exterminate, precisely for what the reasons you're saying, Andrew. But for Hitler and the people like him, then this is his ideal utopian state. And then I think you are torn between, on the one hand, getting to increasingly authoritarian visions of how the world should be, where you just have to force humanity into living happier lives because they are so ordinary and so difficult. And one of the things I, mean, I wrote, you mentioned at the beginning, I wrote a biography of H.G. Wells, which necessitated me reading the entirety of H.G. Wells, and he wrote a lot. And one of the things I noticed in his later career is um, after his, he really bursts on the scene at the end of the 1890s and the 1900s, becomes a global superstar. 
And he keeps writing these utopian novels, publishing nonfiction, saying this is what he must do. And as it increasingly doesn't come to pass, particularly in the run up to World War II, when everything is clearly going horribly wrong all around him, he just gets grumpier and grumpier. It's like, why won't people understand? If they just listen to me, everyone would live a happy life. And that there is something dangerous, I think, in that if we have the power to compel, to force everyone to fit into our regimented uh, utopian vision. The thing I, I, that I love about Clockwork Orange, and I don't say this just to sound perverse, and I certainly don't think there's anything commendable about the life that Alex lives, but he is at least enjoying himself. And he's enjoying himself in a horrible, sadistic way. But that sense of joy, that sometimes it just feels really good to be bad, is right at the heart of this. The, the, the kind of fundamental, I think fundamentally religious, as Burgess understood it, his relationship with religion was very complicated, but he thought we have free will. Taking away free will is, is worse than anything that Alex and his droogs get up to. Having free will means that some people will use their free will to choose to do bad things. And it's not just that. They don't do that out of perversity. They don't do that in the kind of, I don't know, like Graham Greene's bright rock. There's this horrible kind of grimness. Or some of the, I mean, we've mentioned Golding, some of Golding's novels. It all seems very, again, earnest and, and dreary and everyone's wicked and evil and horrible and no one seems to be having any fun. At least Alex is enjoying himself. Not at the end of the novel, he's you know, he has to grow up eventually. That that dystopian, perhaps part of the dystopian appeal is that we are, that's what Freud in his famous essay, Civilization and His Discontents, says this, which I didn't read for a long time because I thought it sounds very, it sounds very kind of impressing and imposing and rather difficult. And actually, it's really short and really um, accessible, Civilization and Its Discontents. And it makes a really straightforward point, which is civilization brings with it all sorts of advantages for any given human being but it entails discontents. That once you live in civilization, the contract is you have to repress your antisocial impulses. You can't just steal and rape and grab whatever you want. And that repression, says Freud, leads to misery and, and neurosis and unhappiness. That's the deal we have to make. And perhaps the dystopian imagination is, imagine if we didn't. Imagine if we could just free up all those horrible impulses that are lurking in our subconscious and act however we want to act I mean, I sometimes think that's what was going on in Game of Thrones it was like saying well let's go to Tolkien's Middle Earth but this time take your sword in your hand kill you know when your boss annoys you I'm not saying that Ian would ever think about this because I'm sure you're a very benign and uh, just boss but let's say your boss annoys you your impulse is I'm going to stab him in the heart with a knife you can't do that obviously you can't do that but the impulse is still there all you can do is repress it and that makes you nervous and unhappy in these dystopian environments, you can act out all these kind of worse dreams. I think it makes, it's one of the reasons why Clockwork Orange is a more successful novel than Wanting Seed. And I, I like Wanting Seed in lots of ways. It's kind of interesting. But in Wanting Seed, Burgess has this overpopulation narrative, which is to say he piles bodies into his, into his imagined dystopian world. And it's that pressure that is so crushing and so unpleasant in that world. And nobody can really do what they want to do because every, there's just there's no resources and everything's overcrowded. And, I mean, I, maybe I'm overstating the joy of, of Clockwork Orange. Maybe I'm revealing inadvertently. I think there is an alternative to, to this kind of authoritarian utopian impulse. And I think you're absolutely right, Andrew. I think that was one of the things that was constant in Burgess's career 
as a writer and as a kind of pundit, if we could use that word, he really resented authority telling him what to do. He really mm. resented the welfare state, not because it, it didn't make people's lives better, obviously it did, but because it entailed bureaucrats telling people how to live their lives. And he thought that was kind of monstrous, really. But that authoritarianism, which is inevitably a part of the utopian, you know, practical utopian dream, is the dystopian element that he as a writer is constantly trying to, um, to smash, to unpick. Is that fair? Maybe it was the army um, and yeah. you know, that experience of, of being, you know, conscripted and then bossed around for six years. Uh, I think a lot of people of his generation felt that. Um, but even later on, when he's a school teacher, he, he's obviously, by his account of it, not a particularly willing or obedient teacher. He's always kind of going off piste and devising his own syllabus and would have had no truck with national curriculum or anything like that. Um, I mean, I think he was better off on the whole being self-employed as he was latterly. He'd have been a nightmare to, to sort of work with or, or manage or anything else. He's also, I think, and a more serious point, he's really interested in, in power and how power can be misused. And I think part of that he takes from his reading of um, writers like Rex Warner, uh, John Cook in the chat has mentioned The Aerodrome, which is one of his kind of foundational dystopian novels, this, this novel about um, these very kind of glamorous airmen um, in an English setting. They're, they're obviously fascists, but there's a young man who's, who's kind of seduced by the power, um, the potential power of, of becoming like them, dressing up in leather and, and you know, sort of dominating the skies and, and comes to see how potentially appalling that is. Um, and, and I think that's one of the things that animates A Clockwork Orange is, is these, these forces that are, they're there, they're present, but they're kind of off stage. The, the, the political figures who only really come into focus towards the end of the book, who've created this, this place that's both, um, you know, it's a, a sort of technological utopia in some ways, and obviously not. There's a political opposition who are just kind of locked up. They're, they're driven away in the middle of the night and, and banged up. Um, whereas the, the wanting seed, it seems to me, maybe the, the, the direction of travel is different. Um, you know, thinking about the shape of the story, there's, there's a, a kind of dystopia that at the end seems to be crumbling because as the book sees it, Pelagianism takes over and people become more sort of free and self-determining and so forth. Um, so he, he's interested. I mean, I don't think he's a, a, a great political thinker. I mean, he's a kind of non-starter. He's got this idea that there's a kind of pendulum of stuff that happens. And that's, that's the, one of the things that drives some of his novels. I was going to say, because we were talking about this a little bit before as well. He insisted all through his career that he was not just a novelist. He was a novelist and a composer. And um, the, I mean, when I first read Clockwork Orange, I was, I think, in my early 20s, the thing that stuck in my craw was it's clearly about, as you said earlier, about teddy boys, about youth culture. It's right at the beginning of the 1960s when pop music starts to become a huge deal. And yet Alex is enthralled to Beethoven. That didn't seem to ring true to me. I mean, obviously, Burgess loves Beethoven and the Ninth Symphony is a great symphony and so on. But wouldn't Alex actually be into rock and roll? And now that I'm a bit older, I think I might have missed the point there that there is one of the ways of avoiding this dramatic problem that your utopia doesn't have um, conflict and therefore doesn't have drama is to take it outside the, the realm of narrative altogether. And that's what music does. Music is not a narrative form of art, but it is very powerful and very stirring, and very 
the movie. So we were suggesting, I mean, famously, uh, Napoleon Symphony, which is his historical novel from the 70s, is structured around another Beethoven symphony, about the, the third symphony, the Eroica. And the subject matter of Napoleon Symphony is often really grim, and it's about the war that Napoleon brings to Europe. But there is also a kind of utopian glimmer there that Napoleon, for all his faults and all his violence, wants to try and unite the world under his authority, obviously, but to do away with all the divisions and all the wars. And something of that kind of musical sense that we get that is so stirring. So when I was saying earlier that we've lost the, the utopian impulse, I don't know, actually, maybe I'm looking in the wrong place, that um, I'm old enough to remember Live Aid. I didn't go to Live Aid, but I did watch Live Aid on the telly. And there was a real sense there didn't come out of any particular narrative and it wasn't even really pegged to particular social programs or, or strategic uses for the money that was raised but there was just this sense of community that was mediated by music that this huge global audience had come together with all this music that they really loved and then I wonder if that's a kind of thread that the perhaps the most utopian book that Burgess wrote is his late kind of quite slim book Mozart and the Wolfgang which is a, kind of a mishmash of various bits and pieces in which he puts in the kind of fictional form his thoughts on music and that it ends not to spoil the novel but it ends literally in heaven with all these composers and other various figures sitting around as Mozart himself plays extraordinary music and you're thinking perhaps that is a kind of utopian kind of perfection do you think it's a problem that Alex is so into Beethoven or am I just being? No, I, I think there are complexities here and I, I think it's interesting to look around the, the canon um, and to think about the, these elements which are always there. Maybe even in the Malayan trilogy as well, the, the, the vision of the school right at the beginning of Time for a Tiger. Yes, it's a colonial school and, and should the British be there in the first place, but the, the way it's set up, um, where the way the novel sets it up, it's, it's an attempt to kind of bring the different races and religions together and give them a sort of common culture. And there is something quite utopian about that as an idea to begin with. And of course, we then watch it fall apart and become aware of these, these fissures that, that run all the way through it. I like very much your idea that Napoleon's symphony could be a sort of hidden utopia. And maybe that's there in the poem at the end of the book where, where mm. the, this author figure steps in and in heroic couplets tries to to make sense of the story and talks about the European ideal, which is Napoleon's great legacy. Um, and must have seemed like a, an entirely good thing um, in, in 1974. I mean, still does, but our relationship with it has, has sadly you know, altered. Um, I wanted to ask you as well, I mean, we'll, we'll bring in everyone else in, in just a moment, but about the, the Black Prince. And the, the question here is whether you can have historical dystopias as well. This is your, your, your novelization of, of Burgess's Black Prince story. Yeah, and I'd, I'll say, I, 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 I mean, there's lots of really interesting questions that are coming out of the chat. It seems a shame to, to hog the microphone as it were, but I'll say something really quickly about that, which is mainly <clears throat> buy my book, buy many copies of my book, and then I can, you know, retire. Don't, you don't have to buy my book. Um, don't take that seriously. Uh, Burgess wrote a screenplay, Ian was saying this earlier, about the life of Edward the Black Prince and the Hundred Years' War in 14th century Britain and France. And what he set out specifically to do, he said he, in, a, in an interview he gave to the Paris Review, was to, to challenge what he called the hey, nonny, nonny 
school of historical writing, he wanted it to be dark and gritty and to not stint the violence and the rape and the disturbance that war brings with it. And he was going to write it in the style of the American modernist writer, John Dos Passos, um, with all the, the, Dos Passos wrote a famous um, trilogy called USA, in which he has this various stylistic experimentation, um, which effectively, I think, fragment the way in which the story is told and divided up between many, many different characters. Um, Dos Passos is a very interesting writer, and this is a, it seems to be a really interesting idea. So I, I took the screenplay, um, uh, consulted with Andrew and the, the centre, and worked it up into a kind of novel, which was then published by Unbound, which is available from all good bookshops and so on. It is a horrible world. It, you could call it a dystopian in that sense. Um, but it is also because it uses Dos Passos, and Dos Passos is a very deliberately kind of technologically modernist writer. So Dos Passos uses um, the newsreels of the 1920s and 30s and the newsprint, the mass media of that era to filter his, his narratives. So I do as well. So it's a kind of deliberately anachronistic novel. To us, looking back on the 14th century, it just seems like hell. You'd hate to live there, never mind the lack of dentistry or the fact that there's no central heating. It's everyone's killing everyone all the time. But I'm not sure it was like that in the 14th century. If you look at 14th century art, if you read Chaucer, let's say, it's a much more positive, kind of joyous, spiritual, really, view of how things are. So it might be that there's something, there's an argument that Frank Camone, the great um, English critic who died recently, his argument about dystopia is the reason why we have become so fascinated by dystopia is that we've lost our sense of God, of religion, that there were dystopian visions before, but they were, we called them something else, we call them apocalypses. That the apocalyptic vision is the world goes horribly, horribly wrong and everyone suffers appallingly. But it doesn't do it randomly. It's not just suffering for the sake of suffering. It's there because God is rolling up the scroll of the world and we're moving on to something better. Um, and having taking that out of the equation, which is perhaps what modernity has done, leaves us with just the residue of all the horror, but none of that kind of uplifting spiritual possibility. So maybe I can see here just popped up again. On, uh, on Sorry. Uh, yeah. I'm thinking he's... You know, is is this? I mean, ultimately, a, a very you know kind of Burgessian, very sort of twentieth century perspective on, on on the Black Prince and how we should understand that story. I'm, I'm afraid it is. I mean, the twenty first century, in my case. I mean, I think it was that was that was a kind of in Burgess's mind, and I think that's also true of his other historical novels, like Napoleon Symphony, which is doing something quite deracinating with the kind of material. So he famously worked with Kubrick to produce the film The Clockwork Orange, and he was going. Kubrick was going to make a movie of Napoleon's life, and this was all Burgess was working on that material. So he's kind of thinking cinematically. He's kind of thinking in uh, in these terms. I think there's something more intimate about reading a novel than there is about watching a film or doing what we're doing here, where we're separated by a screen from the things that are being represented. That the cinema is formally again kind of of its nature slightly more dystopian mode i don't mean to keep going on Ian, you're looking you're looking slightly disapprovingly at me as i blather on here here is here is the host um it's uh, <laughs> the host <laughs> the, the I'm, I'm, host. I'm here to throw some questions at you if that's all right yeah, um i'm i'm uh so in the q a box i'm going to go for uh, what appears to be uh, the most Burgessian question. So Matt asks, 
to what extent do you think that earthly powers contains the DNA of Burgess's dystopian novels? Does Burgess view the land, uh, sorry, the landscape and the catastrophes of the 20th century through a dystopian lens? I mean, I'm sure you have things to say about this, Andrew. It does. The original title of Earthly Powers was the was the Prince of the Powers of the Air, wasn't it? And it's it's a diabolical novel. It's a novel about how devilry, which the novel is deliberately pitches it so that you can read it either way. We could take the devil as a kind of metaphor for all the wicked things that we do, or we could take the devil literally. Perhaps characters are literally possessed by devils. Perhaps the the Pope in the novel is. Uh, is right that this is actually a kind of uh, spiritual battlefield. But it is a novel that's haunted by all the things that we were talking about earlier, all the horrors that came out of World War II, but particularly by the Holocaust. Um, and there's there's nothing more dystopian, I suppose, than all, all of that. Would you call it a dystopian novel, Andrew? I don't know. I, um, as we're talking about it and thinking about it now, the, the book it, it most resembles is, is The Power and the Glory by Graham Greene and that, that debate between the priest and, and the, uh, the, the communist general who doesn't believe in God. And it's kind of animating that, you know, sort of if, if this thing called evil doesn't exist, then, then what is it? How can we understand it? And that's Toomey's dilemma so I mean it is wrestling with all of the um the, the big Burgess themes and in that sense yes it's the kind of DNA and and um and all that how it's related to his kind of formal dystopias I, I don't know I'd need to think more about that I think um, yeah I've, I've got a theory about Burgess which I shall air very briefly because I know time is short um one of the things that really fascinates me about him as a writer is I think he has um a very text of a dim view of Innocence. Innocence is usually praised in the Western tradition. It's good to be innocent. It's bad to be corrupt and experienced. I think Dick, uh, I think Burgess finds innocence terrifying, actually. Uh, One Hand Clapping, for instance, is about a, a perfectly ingenuous and rather likable, charming female character who's the narrator, who's capable because of her innocence of just horrors and murder and, and all sorts of terrible things. I think there's something strangely innocent about Alex in Clockwork Orange. I think for, for Burgess, innocence is, is dangerous because it's disconnected from the way the world actually is. And the, the character in Earthly Powers, which I think is, I mean, to be clear, I think is an absolutely extraordinary and masterful novel, is not to me, not the narrator so much as his, I forget his exact relationship, his, his cousin, his brother-in-law, what's the, the Carlos Campanetti, the guy who becomes the Pope, is related brother of his sister's husband that's right exactly and he is he's a true believer he's a proper catholic he's perfectly well positioned to be pope but he's also kind of horrifying there's a scene in the novel where um a character is being tortured by the nazis and campanet is quite happy to let this go on and not because he enjoys people being tortured but because he's a sadist but because he believes in this higher power he believes he's doing the right thing with um by God and refuses to give up the information that the Nazis want him to give up. There's something, we think of innocence as a kind of utopian quality. I think Burgess sees it as really dangerous, actually, um, and possibly a kind of dystopian quality, that there's the best Burgess characters are the ones who are have, have come to terms with the way the world actually is and are more open about that. 
Mm. And that's Janice at the end of the wanting seed, the, the, not the wanting seed, one hand clapping, um, which you mentioned. Yeah. yeah. You know, she, she's wised up. She's less deceived. Mm. Mm. Uh, another question here. We're not going to get to, to all the questions, I'm afraid, but it's fine. Um, uh, how, Steve says, how aligned do you think the proliferation of dystopian writing is with the advancement of technology? Um, so starting with the Industrial Revolution through the, the horrors of the atomic bomb. I don't know how we can wrap Burgess in the answer. Um, but I guess, Adam, that must be something you've thought about a lot. Yeah, and that was, as I was saying, that, that so the Frank Commode argument would be technology has is, is moved us away from what in the Middle Ages or the Renaissance was a, a more an, an objective, correlative sense of that God is in the world, that we're now a much more secular society than we used to be. And if we take God out of these narratives, then all we're left with are these, you know, to read the book of Revelation, the Revelation of St. John at the end of the Bible, without God, it is a horribly dystopian text. And it's quite descriptive, actually, of the environmental collapse and all the miseries. That are there. So Commode would, I suppose, make that argument. There's another argument by a different critic, which interests me, which is um, Frederick Jameson, the American kind of Marxist cultural critic. He wrote a book called um, uh, Archaeologies of the Future, which is a study of dystopia. And he says, dystopia now is how we do utopia. Utopia straight, an unironic utopia just doesn't work anymore. What dystopia is, is a kind of photographic negative of a utopia. So I'm sure we could say as a kind of common sense observation, the reason why there are so many YA, young adult dystopias, all the Hunger Games and Maze Runners and Divergence and so on, is because a lot of young people feel the world is really stacked against them. The climate's being poisoned, they'll never be able to afford their own house and so on. So there's something kind of direct about that. Jameson's argument is, what a dystopia does is it isolates one thing and it says the world under the logic of this one thing, whatever it might be, is hell. Uh, in youth violence in, in Clockwork Orange, overpopulation in The Wanting Seed, um, the tyranny of, of a kind of Soviet style authoritarian government in 1984 and so on. And Jameson's argument is by doing that, what a dystopia is really doing is saying, that's what we need to fix. If we could just solve that, then the world would become utopian. So perhaps dystopia is a kind of, you still a kind of utopian narrative. Sorry, I've got a horrible dystopian cough, which is not COVID, I, I stress. <laughs> what do you think, Andrew? Um, I, I like to think that, I mean, a lot of the kind of political energies that are around, and this comes partly out of my own attendance at one of these utopia conferences you were mentioning, you know, you, you've got the, the Me Too movement, you've got uh, climate emergency, Black Lives Matter, and I'm, I'll be very curious to see what kind of um, novels, whether utopian or dystopian, come out of those movements, um, obviously mobilising many people, especially young people. I, I think there's um, uh, you know, potentially there, there could be a, a new utopianism just around the corner, which might easily translate into dystopian fiction as, as a way of articulating those principles, perhaps. I can... Um, something in there, isn't it? Sorry, Ian, carry on. No, it's fine. I, I, you, you mentioned uh, kind of Me Too there, which is kind of, you know, has its own sort of dystopian um, element to, to what people have experienced. Um, so I'm sort of piggybacking a bit on Michelle's question. Uh, the question is, can anyone help find female writers from the past 
of dystopian nature. Um, so I guess maybe I can widen that out. Is uh, are there uh, writers, female writers, or even writers of colour that you would um, recommend who are writing dystopia, or is it quite a sort of a, a, a white male thing historically? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think the two of the greatest writers of dystopian fiction are uh, well, one is Margaret Atwood, and what's interesting to me about Atwood's Handmaid's Tale is is that dates from 85, I think it came out first, but then she's done this sequel recently, which, which won or co-won the Booker Prize, and they made the TV series out of Handmaid's Tale, and that spoke very widely. That was very successful. So what she's saying, this kind of horrible kind of gender, and that's that Jameson would say, Handmaid's Tale is saying, this is what's wrong. This is what's making the world hell. It's the way men treat women. It's, it's all the stuff that Me Too is, is about. And if we could fix that, then the world would become kind of utopian. And there's no denying Atwood's written a whole range of fascinating utopias. Oryx and Craig, I think, is a better novel, actually, than Handmaid's Tale, although perhaps less influential. But I would say the greatest writer of dystopia of recent times, Octavia Butler, an African-American writer who died a few years ago, um, in her Parable series, the, the most harrowing novels I think I've ever read, in which she addresses not just, I mean, she, she's a kind of intersectional um, has an intersectional imagination, actually, um, Octavia Butler. So she addresses gender and race in a horrifyingly kind of plausible version of a near future America. And the interesting thing about Butler is, I mean, she's a, a very great writer, I think, and she, her, her, she's only now really getting her due. Um, but the interesting thing about her, which is relates, I think, both to Burgess and to Wales and some of these other people we've been talking about, is that her dystopian imagination is the flip side to her utopian imagination. She wrote a series of novels called the Gene Xenogenesis novels, in which aliens kind of intervene in human affairs and create a, a much better, a much more kind of interesting and equitable and diverse um, kind of template for, for human flourishing in the process. The, the two things are not opposite to one another. You're not in one pigeonhole or the other. You're not either a dystopian or a utopian writer. I think there is something in that Jamesonian idea that they're versions of, of one another. Everybody should read Octavia Butler. She's a great writer. Female utopians as well. Um, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, Her Land, published in 1915. Uh, really interesting uh, uh, utopian feminist uh, work. And more recently, I mean, Naomi Alderman, um, uh, The Power, which somebody's mentioned in the chat as well. So it's a, a, a great book, another kind of parable book, um, you know, maybe comparable to A Clockwork Orange in some ways. Quite a violent book too. Thank you so much. Thank you, Adam. And thank you, Andrew. And uh... Thanks, guys. That was really, I really enjoyed that. You have been listening to the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. Adam Roberts's novelistic reimagining of Anthony Burgess's film script, The Black Prince, is out now. His latest novel, Purgatory Mount, is published by Galantz and available now from your favourite place to buy books. For more information about Anthony Burgess and to find out how you can support the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.anthonyburgess.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.